please turn to John chapter 2, verse 13. While you're turning, it's, uh, it's often been said that you're known partly by the enemies you make. And the great reformer Martin Luther definitely had many, many enemies. But one stands out from the crowd, a fellow named Johann Tetzel. See, Tetzel was a Dominican preacher who was responsible for the sale of indulgences. Now, indulgences are documents that were purchased for a sum of money that granted remission of sins, and thus less time in purgatory, if you believe in such places. Well, that, um, that, art, that angered Martin Luther. I saw that as a direct um, abandonment of grace that you could purchase your salvation or even purchase you know, time from purgatory. As Martin Luther said, if the Pope has authority to remove people from purgatory, then why out of Christian love does he not empty the place? So... He wrote his famous 95 thesis uh, theses, um, and nailed them to the chapel door at Wittenberg to challenge Tetzel to a public debate. So Tetzel uh, was quite the salesman. He put on plays, hawking these. He gave sermons so, uh, about how wonderful indulgences were. He even coined the jingle, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. He promised that indulgences could even secure forgiveness for future sins. Lord, forgive me for the sin I'm about to commit. Tetzel was later accused of fraud and embezzlement. He retired to a Dominican monastery in Leipzig where he died a broken man in 1519. Came to a bad end. Now what was the matter with Johann Tetzel? The Roman Catholic Church used the profits of the sale of indulgences to pay for the reconstruction of St. Peter's Basilica. If you've ever been there, it's a beautiful building, full of artwork. Was it the greed? Was it the materialism? Was Tetzel sort of a spiritual Bernie Madoff? Or was it that by leading people to trust in indulgences, Johann Tetzel led multitudes away from trust in Christ? Now we're in the section concerning the public ministry of God the Son. And last week we looked at Jesus' first miracle, turning the water into wine at the marriage in Cana. This week, some time has elapsed, depending upon your chronology and whether Christ's ministry lasted three years or four years, it's either days or months. It's Passover time, and Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem for the feast. This section can be divided into two main parts and then a short comment at the end. The main parts are the cleansing of the temple itself and then the reaction of the Jewish authorities. And then finally he has an interesting comment about untrustworthy believers that we'll look at. Each of the first two sections follows a real similar pattern. It's either Jesus' actions or the authorities' reactions and then Jesus' words and then the disciples remember it later. So, without further ado, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and when he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables, 
he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. As an observant Jew, our Lord attended the Feast of the Passover. Passover is one of the three feasts that every able-bodied Jewish man is supposed to attend if possible, according to Deuteronomy 16. John calls the feast the Passover of the Jews. Some have said, well, that's strange since John is a Jew. But remember, he's writing after the destruction of the temple by about mm, 20 years or so. And he's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. So it made sense to give that little explanatory note. One goes up to Jerusalem. If you've ever gone, it's mountainous around there. Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet. It's not Denver, but it's definitely up there a bit from sea level. But that's not why you go up. You're going up to Jerusalem because that's a more exalted state. It's the holy city. As the joke was, calling, calling God from the Vatican, you know, it was a long distance call, it cost about $5. Okay. But calling God from Jerusalem costs 25 cents. Why? Because it's a local call. <laughs> okay, that's the idea. Well, Josephus reports great multitudes came out for the feast. They just overwhelmed the city. Now, if Jesus' ministry had lasted four years, then we actually know the date. Um, that would be Saturday, April 14th, A.D. 29. That's Nisan 14, the Jewish month of the Jewish year 3789. Now, if three years, then the date was Wednesday, April 3rd, uh, and that was A.D. 30. Uh, I'm indebted to, um, to my astronomy software for this information, actually, because many of the commentaries had it wrong. But you can, uh, you can go back with astronomy software and look at the full moon, the festivals on the full moon. It's easy to find. So uh, April 3rd or April 14th, Wednesday or Saturday. Now, I think this makes actually small insight, but it makes the traditional three-year ministry more likely. The reason why is would they have been working on Saturday, April 14th? That's Sabbath. You don't work on Sabbath. So I think the money changers at all wouldn't have been working. Um, you know, so I assume then it's actually April 3rd of AD 30. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Now this might be striking a chord with some of you that didn't Jesus cleanse the temple at the end of his ministry? What are we doing here at the beginning? There's Because there are two accounts here. Uh, if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have him cleansing the temple at the end of his ministry. Now some have supposed, therefore, that John is talking about the same event. Now if that were the case, then that would mean that John rearranged the material for some reason thematically. And that's not absolutely out of the realm of possibility uh, because ancient biographers did do that sometimes, arrange the material thematically. But um, the other possibility, of course, is unthinkable that John was mistaken. And I don't know how since those were events that he lived through. I find that hard to believe. It's hard to see, though, how John would have deliberately rearranged the material since it's linked to other events in the chronology. What comes afterward with Nicodemus and the woman of Samaria and everything are intimately connected to what happens here. 
And so if you were going to arrange it thematically, you wouldn't say, and then next this happened. So that would, that would be nonsensical. A better explanation, I think, is that there are simply two cleansings of the temple. Jesus did it twice. There are significant differences between these events. Uh, only John mentions the whip of cords. In John, Jesus is staying in Jerusalem. In the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's staying in Bethany, two different places. Uh, In John, Jesus speaks of a place of business. You've made the temple a place of business. In in the Synoptics, he speaks of a robber's den, different sayings. Jesus' reference to his resurrection is clear in the Synoptics, and it's real dark and veiled in this one. It's really hard to understand. Uh, In John, the authorities demand a sign. In the synoptics, they're indignant and they want to kill him. Different reactions, different events. These dissimilarities argue for two separate cleansings of the temple. One at the beginning and one at the end of Jesus' ministry. Now Jesus saw all this marketing taking place in the temple. Some considered this a real convenience. There was a service. I mean, you couldn't pay your tithes in Roman coins because they had the emperor's image on them, and the graven images were idolatrous. They had sayings sometimes about the emperor being God. You can't do that. You know, so those, those were unacceptable for your tithe and your offerings to be paid in that coin. So they had to convert it um, and to ordinary silver coins that didn't have those images on them. And they charged a charge, somewhere around 12 13%. Okay, kind of stiff, but they, you know, they did that. They also were a service in that, you know, it's hard to bring your animals from, oh, say you're coming from Greece or Italy, you know, you'd have to bring an animal with you all the way and then, then have it uh, sacrificed there. Uh, it's easier if you just bring the money and pay for the animal there. Now, of course, that did circumvent the Passover regulation. You're supposed to take a sheep, keep it for ten days. You know, it's like it become a bit of a pet, and then you had you had to go slaughter it. Uh, so that circumvented the regulations of Passover a little bit here, definitely. But it was a convenience, and yeah, there were overcharging occasionally. And of course, some of the high, the high priestly family got very rich on this arrangement and licensing fees. So those those there were pluses and minuses if you just looked at the economics of it, but. Is that what the problem was? Hmm. You know, Jesus looked around at the temple and he saw this. The, the Greek word there translated temple means the whole temple precinct with its buildings and courts, etc. And that would include the largest area, the area called the Court of the Gentiles. It, were, it had a, you um, kind of worked from the outside in. You had the Court of the Gentiles, which was the biggest area. Then you had the Court of Women. Sorry, ladies, they didn't let you go all the way in. And then they had the court of, of Israel, which were all, where all the men got to go. And then you had the priestly court right around the temple, where the altar was and all that. And only the priests and Levites got to go there. So that kind of situation was a setup, and it was stringently enforced. Um, the court of the Gentiles, uh, the boundary around it, uh, the inner court had a sign in Greek that actually was found in 1870 and it said no foreigner shall enter within the bolstrade of the temple or within the precinct 
Whosoever shall be caught shall be responsible for his death that will follow in consequence of his trespassing. Yipes. Yeah. It's, now you had a definite message for the Gentiles. Thus far, no further. We do not want you in here. And you know it's going to go really badly for you if you do. Um, now, that outer court then was the only place where Gentiles could pray in the temple. Remember, when he cleanses the temple later, Jesus said, My house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. In Hebrew, goyim, all the Gentiles. Okay? So, Jesus' problem, I don't think, was with just the injustice of the trade, but that it interfered with the worship of God by the Gentiles. That was where they had set up shop. Yeah, we don't care about Gentiles. We'll just set up a few stalls here and have our cattle and our money changers and that sort of thing. Why? Because Gentiles aren't important. God doesn't care about Gentiles, does he? Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Now, John's Gentile audience doubtless would appreciate this, right? They would they would go, oh, wow, the court of the Gentiles. God cares about Gentiles. Yeah, He's concerned about all people, not just Jews. Okay, all people. And Jesus made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He drove out all these vendors along with their animals, forced them all out, and then he upset the tables. Matter of fact, the modern Greek word for bank, trapeza, means table. The money changers' table. So, the word translated whip here, uh, fragelion, is a Latin loan word from flagellum. It's a whip consisting of several thongs, sort of a, a cat of nine tails type thing. And I, just, I can just see Jesus swinging. Um, <laughs> now, the, reactions, the actions were radical. They were disruptive. I would point out that they didn't cause irreparable damage. I mean, you drive off the animals, they can go catch them. You, know, you turn over the tables, they can pick up their coins. Yeah, and the doves, uh, which if he'd left them out, there would have been no retrieving them. Well, he just told the vendors, get out of here. And by that time, they decided that discretion was a better part of valor. After watching him drive off the cattle and the sheep and upset the money changers, they decided they did not want to be next. Um, So, and then Jesus speaks, and we have Jesus' words here. First his actions, then his words. And those who were selling the doves, he said... Uh, to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of business. Jesus viewed the actions of these vendors as a desecration of the temple. Now, by the way, just in passing, my father's house. That's a real clear statement of what? Jesus' divine sonship. I'm not sure they picked up on it in the, in the confusion, but that was, oh, you think God is your father. Later on, that nearly got Jesus stoned. We'll see later on. The Greek word translated business here is emporion. We get that from the Latin emporium. Uh, used to, in days gone by, use that for a supermarket. You know, An emporium, a market, a marketplace. Don't do that. There's a play on the word house, of course. It's a house of prayer, my father's house. And what is? what are they making it? A house of merchandise, an emporium. Now, Jesus may have been thinking of Zechariah 14 
Uh, verse may not have caught your attention because I think it's actually slightly mistranslated most of the time. Zechariah 14.21 says, And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts that day. I'm going, okay, what's that got to do with anything? Well, the Hebrew word transla- translated Canaanite, uh, Ka'anani, may be translated tradesman or merchant also. And I think that's more legitimate. The uh, Aramaic paraphrases of the Old Testament, the Targums, actually has those who do business will not be in the house of the Lord. That's been translated trader, uh, traders, merchant, merchants, that sort of thing by several translations. So depending upon your translation, you may not have caught that one. But I think that Zechariah is predicting that, yes, that's going to be something the Messiah is going to do. The Messiah is going to stop the merchandising in the house of the Lord. Jesus wasn't protesting the temple itself. I was surprised how many commentators said that. Well, the temple was ordained by God. Nothing wrong with the temple, except that he was going to fulfill it, but there's nothing wrong with it. He was protesting that which interfered with the worship of God. Now, men and women, I think I want to be careful to allow nothing to interfere with my worship of God or place no hindrance before others in their worship of God. Jesus apparently takes that very seriously. So I don't want to be guilty of doing that myself. We should be careful about that. Greek grammar here indicates that Jesus is commanding they stop the action already in process, which is the way the New American Standard translates it. What they're doing, they're making the temple a place of business instead of worship. Stop that. It is going on. Stop it. Uh, Jerome, the uh, uh, 5th century commentator, early church father, had an interesting uh, statement here. He said that a certain fiery and starry light shone from his eyes and the majesty of God had gleamed on his face when Jesus drove the money changers out. I don't know if he was glowing or not, but I know that facing an angry, determined Jesus is not something that you would want to take lightly. You know? now, once again, this, this uh, I know I've mentioned this before, and I'll probably say it again because it's one of my pet peeves, but the myth of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that's not our Lord. He was a man of action. He was a man of decision. You know? And this, you know, he's not some Victor Melktoast that you could knock over with a feather. That is not Jesus. Yeah. Now, that was his response then. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. See, the disciples remembered. They didn't immediately understand the meaning of what Jesus said. But that's something that they stuck in their head, they treasured it and thought about it. They meditated on it. We shouldn't be surprised that they didn't didn't get it right away. John himself writes in chapter 15, or rather quotes Jesus as saying, uh, in chapter 14 rather, quotes Jesus saying, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the Holy Spirit will bring to their remembrance. The scripture is actually a quote from Psalm 69.9. It's not generally considered a messianic psalm, but it is a psalm of David when he was undergoing persecution. And he wrote that zeal for your house has consumed me. The Greek word translated zeal, zelos, actually is what we get zeal from. But it means active enthusiasm, 
ardent affection, keen interest, earnest concern. It's not, oh, um, yeah, that bothers me a little bit. I think the apathy in, in our society today, in our world, is incredible. We have millions dying every year in abortion. And most people yawn. We watch calamities on television constantly. And we yawn. You know, it's been said the death of one person is a tragedy, the death of a million is a statistic. You know? Jesus wasn't that way. Jesus had zeal about about something that was wrong. He had active enthusiasm, ardent affection, keen interest. The Greek word translated consume here means to eat up ravenously, to eat up, devour, swallow. The sense is it's going to destroy Jesus ultimately. The zeal that he has for God's house is going to eat him up, literally. Actually, the Greek is eat you down, but you know, it's the same idiom. <laughs> we say eat up, they say eat down. Um, so John sees this as the beginning of the conflict that's going to intensify until it results inevitably in Jesus' death. The shadow of the cross. Always look for that. It's always here. You know, he knows he knows from the beginning how it's going to end. Now the Jewish leaders' reaction is interesting. They didn't say you are wrong to do this. Interestingly enough. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? They demand a sign from Jesus to validate his authority to behave like this. They don't say, Oh, you're wrong. This is a good thing. You shouldn't have done that. They say, What authority do you have? It's always a question of authority with them. The term the Jews, by the way, does not refer to the crowd, the common people, but the Jewish authorities. Uh, in John, frequently you'll see that. And in places they're even distinguished from the crowd. Now the rabbis say, if the righteous men ask for a sign, then how much more so the wicked? They didn't think that that would be used against them. But <laughs> that's it is, as Paul said, Jews demand miraculous signs. It's First Corinthians. Uh, the Greek word for sign here, though, is the same one that John's been using. So John doesn't have a problem that there are signs and that they point to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't perform signs for his opponents on demand. I like that about our Lord. He does not let the other guy set the agenda. You know? And it's a um, matter of fact, in the later cleansings, in, like in Matthew uh, 12 also, Jesus had a similar situation where some scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Okay? So see them barking the orders. And he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There's only one sign that the opponents are going to get. The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the sign. And that's the only one they're going to get. All those miracles he did, 
you know, in response to faith and, and, and that sort of thing, it's fine. There are signs too. But for those whose minds are already made up, for those who are closed, for those who are locked into opposition to him, he says there's only one sign you're going to get. I'm going to conquer death. And when you see that happen, remember. Remember what I told you. Jesus answered them this time, destroy the temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now that's enigmatic. You know, as he ta- their, first, their first glance, look around, go, you're talking about destroying the temple? They're horrified. That would be the worst thing they could imagine happen. It did happen in AD 70. And it was a very bad day. Actually, it's still celebrated as a, a fast. Not a, well, not celebrated, but it's still observed as a fast in Judaism. As it occurred on the ninth of the Jewish month, Av. And the ninth of Av is always a fast. Uh, Orthodox Jews read Lamentations on that day and, and don't eat. Because the first and second temples were both destroyed on the same day. Interestingly enough, also, you know, Twilight Zone stuff, but the, the Nazis' uh, uh, Kristallnacht was also the ninth of Av. Yeah, so all of the, you know, it's like, that's always a bad day for Jews. Um, <laughs> it's not, not a good day. So Jesus responds with this enigmatic saying. Now he's talking about his resurrection, we find out, but they don't, they don't understand that. You know, again, when he cleanses the temple again at the end of his ministry, he'll talk about the sign of Jonah and that sort of thing, and it's a lot clearer. The Jewish leaders don't get it. They say, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, John tells us, of the temple of his body. Appreciate John's commentary there, or we might not have gotten it either. 46 years. Again, the Jewish authorities don't get it. It's a veiled reference. That also is not surprising, though. John already told us, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So, why are we surprised that the Jewish authorities didn't get it? Wouldn't have expected them to. John, Jesus, no doubt, wants them to think about this saying. You know, he was fond of enigmatic sayings, and the effect would have would be to to stick in people's minds and to bug them. And I think that's what he wanted this to do. He wanted them to think about it long and hard until they understood the riddle. They're astounded, of course, because that's an, act, an architectural impossibility. How do you build a, a temple like this in three days? Now, the Greek word translated temple here is different. Last time it was hieron, the temple precincts. This time it's naos, which means a place or a structure specifically associated with or set apart for a deity is frequently perceived as using it as a dwelling. So we're talking about the center part of the temple, the, the actual temple building. It's a different word in, in uh, verses 14 and 15. It means the entire temple precincts. Now, this 46 years either means that the temple refurbishment has been going on for 46 years or that the sanctuary has, has stood for 46 years. That one actually makes better sense and fits the chronology better. Um, Josephus noted that Herod, who reigned from 36 to 4 B.C., in the 18th year of his reign, which is around 20 to 19 B.C., and after the Acts already mentioned, undertook a very great work that is to build by himself, I think that's funny, he didn't have a carpenter with him, 
by himself the temple of God and make it larger in size and raise it to a most magnificent height as esteeming it to be the most glorious of all his actions as it really was to bring to perfection and that this would be sufficient for an everlasting memorial of him. Okay? Not God. Of Herod. What an ego. <laughs> but anyway, I just had to read that. But the, the date, therefore, of Jesus' statement, you know, uh, would be A.D. 30, you know, in all probability. The rabbis, no great fan of Herod the, date, uh, Herod the Great, comment that whoever has not beheld Herod's building has not seen anything beautiful in his life. It was pretty. But, and they did expect the Messiah to cleanse and restore the temple. And yet, they don't take Jesus seriously here. And will you, the you is emphatic in Greek, you, somebody like you, you're going to rebuild it in three days? There's this dripping scorn. They didn't take him seriously. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. He's referring to his resurrection. It's as if he said to them, if I don't die from the dead, I mean, excuse me, let me try that again. If I don't rise from the dead, so do not believe that I am the Messiah. He's putting it on the line. Now again, it's much clearer in, you know, in the second time he cleanses the table, the temple. Jesus has staked the truth of his mission on the resurrection. Now again, the disciples remember this. So when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he said this. They believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. They didn't grasp the meaning of the saying until later, until he was raised from the dead. That saying was memorable. I'm sure it stuck in their minds. They just didn't understand it. It was recounted in a twisted form, if you'll remember, at his trial. People stood up to accuse him, saying, well, he said he'd destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. But they couldn't get their story straight, so the testimony had to be thrown out. When he was on the cross, some of the taunts that were thrown at him were, you who would destroy the temple and raise it up again in three days. See, they remembered this. This this one stuck in everybody's mind. Um, One expositor commented that it shows how long truth may lie dormant in men's minds without being understood or doing them any service. We must not suppose religious teaching does no good because it's not understood immediately. It may do good long after the teacher's dead. I take comfort in that. You know, that sometimes that stuff will stick in people's minds and years later you know, come to fruition. So that was the interplay between Jesus and the priests and the scribes and Pharisees in the temple. Now we move to this little interesting little comment at the end about untrustworthy believers. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what is in man. There's no reason to think, as many people seem to, that these people had not exercised saving faith. That's all—it's taken for granted, strangely, uh, so many times that, well, this wasn't real faith. As 
Not actually what it says. It says the Greek word translated believe here means to consider something to be true, therefore worthy of one's trust. John said they believed in his name. And earlier, in chapter 1, verse 12, he had said that the right to become children of God is given to those who believe in his name. Unless John's trying to confuse us, I don't see any evidence that they didn't exercise saving faith. They were observing his signs. And some say, oh, well, see, faith that's just based on seeing some miracles is not real faith. Well, that's funny because that's exactly the effect that John hopes that Jesus' signs would have, that they'd lead you to faith. It says so in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So, I don't, uh, I don't see any evidence that they weren't truly believers. Uh, John, of course, focuses on seven signs, but he by no means considers them the only signs Jesus, is, Jesus would perform, or had performed, rather, because he said uh, on two occasions, actually, that there were many others. That if you wrote them down, you, couldn't, you wouldn't be able to hold everything, uh, you wouldn't, all the books that would result, you wouldn't be able to hold them in the entire world. Um, so clearly, these signs, their faith resulting from the signs, they believed in his name, that seems to me that they're truly believers. And he doesn't say anything to the contrary in the text. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men. The Greek word for entrusting is the same as believed in the previous verse. So this has been translated, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name. When they saw the signs he was doing, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. So it's a play on words there. They trusted Jesus. Jesus didn't trust them, basically. But again, there's no need to jump to the conclusion that their faith wasn't valid. They simply weren't trustworthy. Okay? We trust Jesus. Can he trust us? And because he need not anyone testify to him concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This and the verse before clearly tell us that Jesus is omniscient. I mean, you may as well be honest with him. We can't hide anything from him anyway, right? He knows you intimately. He knows you better than you know yourself. And we saw a little glimpse of that with Nathaniel when he called the first uh, disciples. And we'll see it time and time again. And Jesus looks right through people. He has that kind of divine knowledge. Now, this is a perfect segue then to the next section that we'll talk about next week, God willing, where Jesus receives a night visit from a man. He, He knows all about men. He knows what's in men. He knows the hearts of men. And... Then he's going to get a visit from a man named Nicodemus. But that's next week. How do we apply this? Well, about Jesus, we find that he's concerned with all people, not just Jews. That he takes decisive action. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is a myth. That's not the Lord. This cleansing of the temple is the beginning of the conflict that's going to intensify until it results in his death. But he staked the truth of his mission on his resurrection. Now for us, we need to be careful not to allow anything to interfere with either our worshiping God or placing hindrances in front of others in their worship of God. 
I think that should be a priority for us. We need to be very careful about placing stumbling blocks before people. We may as well be honest with Jesus because we can't hide anything from him anyway. And finally, we trust Jesus, but can he trust us? Are we trustworthy? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this passage, for the way that it displays your blazing righteousness, and also the way that it displays your concern for all people. Father, I pray for us that we would not put stumbling blocks in people's way, that we would not do anything that would hinder them from approaching you. May we always truly represent you. And Lord, I pray that you'd work in our hearts, that we would be faithful and mature believers. Yes, we trust you, but Lord, I pray you'd work in our hearts so that that we reach the point where you can trust us in fulfilling your mission. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.